0: Part One, Chapter Four, Section Three of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part One, Chapter Four, Section Three. With that fatal diffidence in well doing inherent in the present condition of humanity, the Fynes continued to watch at their window. It's always so difficult to know what to do for the best, Fine assured me. It is. Good intentions stand in their own way so much. Whereas if you want to do harm to anyone, you needn't hesitate. You have only to go on. No one will reproach you with your mistakes or call you a confounded clumsy meddler. The fines watched the door, the closed street door inimical somehow to their benevolent thoughts, the face of the house cruelly impenetrable. It was just as on any other day. The unchanged daily aspect of inanimate things is so impressive that Fine went back into the room for a moment, picked up the paper again, and ran his eyes over the item of news. No doubt of it. It looked very bad. He came back to the window, and Mrs Fine. Tired out as she was, she sat there resolute and ready for responsibility. But she had no suggestion to offer. People do fear a rebuff wonderfully, and all her audacity was in her thoughts. She shrank from the incomparably insolent manner of the governess. Fine stood by her side, as in those old-fashioned photographs of married couples where you see a husband with his hand on the back of his wife's chair. And they were about as efficient as an old photograph, and as still till Mrs. Fine started slightly. The street door had swung open, and bursting out appeared the young man, his hat, Mrs. Fine observed, tilted forward over his eyes. After him, the governess slipped through, turning round at once to shut the door behind her with care. Meantime, the man went down the white steps and strode along the pavement, his hands rammed deep into the pockets of his fawn overcoat. The woman, that woman of composed movements, of deliberate superior manner, took a little run to catch up with him, and directly she had caught up with him tried to introduce her hand under his arm. Mrs. Fine saw the brusque half-turn of the fellow's body as one avoids an importunate contact, defeating her attempt rudely. She did not try again, but kept pace with his stride, and Mrs. Fine watched them, walking independently, turn the corner of the street side by side, disappear forever. The Fines looked at each other eloquently, doubtfully. What do you think of this? Then, with common accord, turned their eyes back to the street door, closed, massive, dark, the great clear brass knocker shining in a quiet slant of sunshine cut by a diagonal line of heavy shade filling the further end of the street. Could the girl be already gone, sent away to her father? Had she any relations? Nobody but De barrel himself ever came to see her, Mrs. Fyne remembered, and she had the instantaneous, profound, maternal perception of the child's loneliness, and a girl, too. It was irresistible. "'and besides, the departure of the governess "'was not without its encouraging influence. "'I'm going over at once to find out,' she declared resolutely, "'but still staring across the street.' Her intention was arrested by the sight of that awful, sombrely glistening door, swinging back suddenly on the yawning darkness of the hall, out of which literally flew out, right out on the pavement, almost without touching the white steps, a little figure swathed in a Holland pinafore up to the chin, its hair streaming back from its head, darting past a lamp post, past the red pillar box. "'Here!' cried Mrs Fine. "'She's coming here! Run, John, run!' Fine bounded out of the room this is his own word, bounded. He assured me with intensified solemnity that he bounded, and the sight of the short and muscular fine bounding gravely about the circumscribed passages and staircases of a small, very high-class private hotel would have been worth any amount of money to a man greedy of memorable impressions. But as I looked at him, the desire of laughter at my very lips, I asked myself, How many men could be found ready to compromise their cherished gravity for the sake of the unimportant child of a ruined financier with an ugly black cloud already wreathing his head? I didn't laugh at little Fine. I encouraged him. You did. Very good. Well? His main thought was to save the child from some unpleasant interference. There was a porter downstairs, page boys, some people going away with their trunks in the passage, a railway omnibus at the door, white-breasted waiters dodging about the entrance. He was in time. He was at the door before she reached it in her blind course. She did not recognise him. Perhaps she did not see him. He caught her by the arm as she ran past and, very sensibly, without trying to check her, simply darted in with her and up the stairs, causing no end of consternation amongst the people in his way. They scattered. What might have been their thoughts at the spectacle of a shameless middle-aged man abducting headlong into the upper regions of a respectable hotel, a terrified young girl, obviously under age, I don't know. And fine, he told me so, did not care for what people might think. All he wanted was to reach his wife before the girl collapsed. For a time she ran with him, but at the last flight of stairs he had to seize and half-drag, half carry her to his wife. Mrs. Fine waited at the door with her quite unmoved physiognomy and her readiness to confront any sort of responsibility which already characterised her long before she became a ruthless theorist. Relieved, his mission accomplished, Fine closed hastily the door of the sitting-room. But before long, both Fines became frightened. After a period of immobility in the arms of Mrs. Fine, the girl, who had not said a word, tore herself out from that slightly rigid embrace. She struggled dumbly between them. They did not know why, soundless and ghastly, till she sank exhausted on a couch. Luckily, the children were out with the two nurses. The hotel housemaid helped Mrs. Fyne to put Flora de Barrel to bed. She was as if gone speechless and insane. She lay on her back, her face white like a piece of paper the dark eyes staring at the ceiling, her awful immobility broken by sudden shivering fits with a loud chattering of teeth in the shadowy silence of the room, the blinds pulled down, Mrs. Vine sitting by patiently, her arms folded, yet inwardly moved by the riddle of that distress of which she could not guess the word, and saying to herself, that child is too emotional, much too emotional to be ever really sound. As if anyone not made of stone could be perfectly sound in this world. And then, how sound? In what sense? To resist what? Force? Or corruption? And even in the best armour of steel, there are joints, a treacherous stroke, can always find, if chance gives the opportunity. General considerations never had the power to trouble Mrs. Fine much. The girl, not being in a state to be questioned, she waited by the bedside. Fine had crossed over to the house, his scruples overcome by his anxiety to discover what really had happened. He did not have to lift the knocker. The door stood open on the inside gloom of the hall. He walked into it and saw no one about, the servants having assembled for a fatuous consultation in the basement. Vine's uplifted bass voice startled them down there, the butler coming up, staring and in his shirt sleeves, very suspicious at first and then, on Fine's explanation that he was the husband of a lady who had called several times at the house, Mr. Barrel's mother's friend, becoming humanely concerned and communicative in a man-to-man tone, but preserving his trained, high-class servant's voice. "'Oh, bless you, sir! No, she does not mean to come back. She told me so herself,' he assured Fine, with a faint shade of contempt creeping into his tone." As regards the young lady, nobody downstairs had any idea that she had run out of the house. He did say they would all have been willing to do their very best for her for the time being, but since she was now with her mother's friends, he fidgeted. He murmured that all this was very unexpected. He wanted to know what he had better do with letters or telegrams which might arrive in the course of the day. ''Letters addressed to Mr. Barrow you had better bring over to my hotel over there,'' said Fine, beginning to feel extremely worried about the future. The man said, ''Yes, sir,'' adding, ''And if a letter comes addressed to Mrs...'' Fine stopped him by a gesture. ''I don't know. Anything you like?'' ''Very well, sir.'' The butler did not shut the street door after Fine, but remained on the doorstep for a while, looking up and down the street in the spirit of independent expectation, like a man who is again his own master.' Mrs. Fine, hearing her husband return, came out of the room where the girl was lying in bed. No change, she whispered, and Fine could only make a hopeless sign of ignorance as to what all this meant and how it would end. He feared future complications, naturally. A man of limited means, in a public position, his time not his own? Yes, he owned to me in the parlour of my farmhouse that he had been very much concerned then at the possible consequences. But as he was making this artless confession, I said to myself that, whatever consequences and complications he might have imagined, the complication from which he was suffering now could never, never have presented itself to his mind. Slow but sure, for I conceive that the Book of Destiny has been written up from the beginning to the last page, it had been coming for something like six years, and now it had come. The complication was here. I looked at his unshaken solemnity with an amused pity we give the victim of a funny, if somewhat ill-natured, practical joke. Oh, hang it, he exclaimed, in no logical connection with what he had been relating to me. Nevertheless, the exclamation was intelligible enough. However, at first there were, he admitted, no untoward complications, no embarrassing consequences. To a telegram in guarded terms, dispatched to de Barrel, no answer was received for more than twenty-four hours. This certainly caused the Fine some anxiety. When the answer arrived late on the evening of the next day, it was in the shape of an elderly man, an unexpected sort of man. Fine explained to me with precision that he evidently belonged to what is most respectable in the lower middle classes. He was calm and slow in his speech. He was wearing a frock coat, had grey whiskers meeting under his chin, and declared on entering that Mr de Barrel was his cousin. He hastened to add that he had not seen his cousin for many years, while he looked upon Fine, who received him alone, with so much distrust that Fine felt hurt. The person actually refusing at first the chair offered to him, and retorted tartly that he, for his part, had never seen Mr. de Barrel in his life, and that since the visitor did not want to sit down, he, Fine, begged him to state his business as shortly as possible. The man in black sat down then with a faint superior smile. He had come for the girl. His cousin had asked him in a note delivered by a messenger to go to Brighton at once and take his girl over from a gentleman named Fine and give her house room for a time in his family. And there he was. His business had not allowed him to come sooner. His business was the manufacture, on a large scale, of cardboard boxes. He had two grown-up girls of his own. He had consulted his wife, and so that was all right. The girl would get a welcome in his home. His home most likely was not what she had been used to, but etc, etc. All the time Fine felt subtly in that man's manner a derisive disapproval of everything that was not lower middle class, a profound respect for money, a mean sort of contempt for speculators that fail, and a conceited satisfaction with his own respectable vulgarity. With Mrs. Fine, the manner of the obscure cousin of De Barrel was but little less offensive. He looked at her rather slyly, but her cold, decided demeanour impressed him. Mrs Fine, on her side, was simply appalled by the personage, but did not show it outwardly. Not even when the man remarked with false simplicity that Florrie, her name was Florrie, wasn't it, would probably miss at first all her grand friends. And when he was informed that the girl was in bed, not feeling well at all, he showed an unsympathetic alarm. She wasn't an invalid, was she? No. What was the matter with her, then? An extreme distaste for that respectable member of society was depicted in Fine's face, even as he was telling me of him after all these years. He was a specimen of precisely the class of which people like the Fynes have the least experience, and I imagine he jarred on them painfully. He possessed all the civic virtues in their very meanest form, and the finishing touch was given by a low sort of consciousness he manifested of possessing them. His industry was exemplary. He wished to catch the earliest possible train next morning. It seems that for seven and twenty years he had never missed being seated on his office stool at the factory punctually at ten o'clock every day. He listened to Mrs. Fyne's objections with undisguised impatience. Why couldn't Florrie get up and have her breakfast at eight like other people? In his house the breakfast was at eight sharp. Mrs. Fyne's polite stoicism overcame him at last. He had come down at a very great personal inconvenience, he assured her with displeasure, but he gave up the early train. The good finds didn't dare to look at each other before this unforeseen but perfectly authorised guardian, the same thought springing up in their minds, poor girl, poor girl. If the women of the family were like this too, and of course they would be, poor girl. But what could they have done, even if they had been prepared to raise objections? The person in the frock-coat had the father's note he had shown it to fine. Just a request to take care of the girl as her nearest relative, without any explanation or a single allusion to the financial catastrophe, its tone strangely detached, and in its very silence on the point, giving occasion to think that the writer was not uneasy as to the child's future. Probably, it was that very idea which had set the cousin so readily in motion. Men had come before out of commercial crashes with estates in the country and a comfortable income, if not for themselves, then for their wives. And if a wife could be made comfortable by a little dexterous management, then why not a daughter? Yes, this possibility might have been discussed in the person's household and judged worth acting upon. The man actually hinted broadly that such was his belief, and in face of Fine's guarded replies gave him to understand that he was not the dupe of such reticences. Obviously, he looked upon the finds as being disappointed because the girl was taken away from them. They, by a diplomatic sacrifice in the interests of poor Flora, had asked the man to dinner. He accepted, ungraciously, remarking that he was not used to late hours. He had generally a bit of supper, about half-past eight or nine. However, he gazed contemptuously round the prettily decorated dining room. He wrinkled his nose in a puzzled way at the dishes offered to him by the waiter, but refused none, devouring the food with a great appetite, and drinking, swelling, Fine called it, gallons of ginger beer, which was procured for him, in stone bottles, at his request. The difficulty of keeping up a conversation with that being exhausted Mrs. Fine herself, who had come to the table armed with adamantine resolution. The only memorable thing he said was when, in a pause of gorging himself with these French dishes, he deliberately let his eyes roam over the little tables occupied by parties of diners, and remarked that his wife did, for a moment, think of coming down with him, but that he was glad she didn't do so. "'She wouldn't have been at all happy seeing all this alcohol about. Not at all happy,' he declared weightily. "'You must have had a charming evening,' I said to Fine, "'if I may judge from the way you have kept the memory green.' "'Delightful,' he growled with positively a flash of anger at the recollection, "'but lapsed back into his solemnity at once. "'After we'd been silent for a while, "'I asked whether the man took away the girl next day. "'Vine said that he did, in the afternoon, in a fly, "'with a few clothes the maid had got together and brought across from the big house. "'He only saw Flora again ten minutes before they left for the railway station, "'in the fine sitting-room at the hotel.' It was a most painful ten minutes for the Fynes. The respectable citizen addressed Mr. Barrel as Florrie and, my dear, remarking to her that she was not very big. There's not much over you, my dear, in a familiarly disparaging tone. Then, turning to Mrs. Fine, and quite loud, She's very white in the face. Why is that? To this Mrs. Fine made no reply. She had put the girl's hair up that morning with her own hands. It changed her very much, observed Fine. He naturally played a subordinate, merely approving part. All he could do for Mr. Barrel personally was to go downstairs and put her into the fly himself, while Mr. Barrel's nearest relation, having been shouldered out of the way, stood by with an umbrella and a little black bag, watching this proceeding with grim amusement, as it seemed. It was difficult to guess what the girl thought or what she felt. She no longer looked a child. She whispered to Fine a faint, "'Thank you,' from the fly." And he said to her in very distinct tones, and while still holding her hand, Pray don't forget to write fully to my wife in a day or two, Mr. Barrel. Then Fine stepped back, and the cousin climbed into the fly, muttering quite audibly, I don't think you'll be troubled much with her in the future. Without, however, looking at Fine, on whom he did not even bestow a nod, the fly drove away. End of Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 3